Hey, Unexplained Ones, this is Dr. Mounts from All Things Unexplained. We talk about everything from Bigfoot to UFOs to astrophysics and everything in between. So if that sort of thing is for you, give us a follow on social media and follow us wherever you podcast. Remember, this podcast is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to help us out, you can do so on Venmo at Bigfoot UFO. A production note for this episode... Travis Walton was not able to join us on video due to technical difficulties, so the director of the Travis Walton documentary, Jennifer Stein, told his story until Travis was able to join us on telephone, just like he did in 1996 in a classic Coast to Coast AM episode with Art Bell. All Things Unexplained, hosted by Dr. Mounts. Let's face it, we were always ready to roll without him anyway. <laughs> CJ Derringer. Ain't nobody perfect, right? And Smitty Neves. I've never planned out hardly anything my whole life. I just free ball. Featuring Cajun Man. I'm just old nobody, somebody looking for somebody. Hello, all you unexplained ones. Thank you for joining us. Boy, I hope you've buckled up because we have got a show for you. I got nightmares in my head. I fear that the thoughts build up until I can't hear that my mind fills up into a creature and it haunts me somewhere much deeper. We are thrilled to have Jennifer Stein and Travis Walton with us on this show. They are here to talk to us about Travis Walton's abduction, everything from the abduction to the aftermath to the documentary that they've created. They're both well-known in the UFO circle. So take us to the beginning. When and where did this all happen? His event happened November 5th, 1975, in the Sitgraves National Forest, which is on top of what's called the Mogollon Rim. And it is a large uh, plateau that sits bordering a number of states. It, it covers parts of northern New Mexico, goes through northeastern Arizona, and goes straight on up into uh, Colorado. Uh, it's a it's a huge uh, area. It's the largest ponderosa pine forest in the world, and the Sitgraves National Forest is part of our national uh, forest, you know, uh, parks. <laughs> and he was working uh, in a program called Timber Stand Improvement, and uh, that is a um, a form of of logging where loggers go out and they contract to clear a certain amount of underbrush so that during right. fire seasons, when it's high and dry and windy, a huge fire doesn't break out and, you know, uh, doesn't wipe out the whole forest. But this area also has a lot of lightning strikes. And uh, that's one of the reasons why they do timber stand improvement contracts. So Travis was one of seven members on a logging crew and the logging crew chief was named Mike Rogers. And it was in November and they were, it was the end of the day. They were logging, you know, making what's called slash piles or stacked piles of wood to burn once it snowed. And uh, they were leaving the site. It was the end of the day and they had all piled into the truck and they were starting to head out of the regional area, the valley they were clearing, which is called the Turkey Springs Valley. And uh, they were just heading up towards the rim road when they saw this strange light in the sky. As they were leaving the forest, they saw this odd light in the sky and um, they weren't really on a road. It was just a clearing in the forest driving up to a dirt road or a gravel road called the Rim Road. And it was in a valley. So as they were heading up this valley uh, embankment, they see what looks like possibly a plane crash. It was bright light, possibly in the canopy of the trees. They couldn't quite figure out what it was. And they kind of agreed, well, they're going to have to hurry up and get up there and see what this odd light is. And when they got to the area where this light was shining through the trees and creating a, you know, a bright light across the, the area they were passing, it wasn't even really a road. It was sitting there clear as day. They all saw it and they were screaming, 
oh my God, it's a, you know, F and UFO, excuse my French. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. Yeah. Well, that's what you would say. Yeah. There was no doubt. It was, it was not Venus. It wasn't the moon. The moon was behind them. You know, stars weren't quite up yet. And besides, they were surrounded by a high canopy of wooded, wooded trees. And this was below the canopy of the pine trees. There had been a large tree there, I think like an oak tree or something that had been cut the year before. And that created a large clearing. And this disc was hovering in that clearing, kind of hiding, <laughs> we think. How old was Travis at this time? Travis was 21 years old. Mike Rogers, who was the crew boss, was 28 years old. There was another guy in the in the truck, in the middle of the truck, seated in the in the in the center seat. That was called Kenny Rogers. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Ken Ken Peterson, Kenny Peterson. Not the gambler. I was gonna say he's got a very famous name. <laughs> yeah, you got no one to hold him. <laughs> Yeah. So and anyway, Travis was right in the with the jump seat, the passenger side. He threw open the door and ran up this embankment. It was kind of up a little bit of a hill. He wanted a really good look at this thing. He was like, you know, most times you see a craft, you startle upon one and it takes off. Right. right? And and, you know, some of the other boys in the crew, you know, said, this thing was absolutely beautiful. It was looking at this high sophisticated piece of machinery one of them said it was better than looking at a brand new corvette you know they were stunned <laughs> I, I wasn't sure what you were about to say there Me either. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there was a very sophisticated piece of machinery it was undulating slightly it was it was turning slightly and once travis got under it it started to kind of rise up a little bit. They could feel static electric charge building up on their bodies, on their, on, in, in the, um, you know, their hair was starting to stand up on end. They could hear high pitch sounds and very low pitch sounds, very unusual noises were coming out of the craft. So Travis decided he would jump for cover because the guys in the truck were screaming at him like, Travis, you know, what the heck? Get back in the truck. Get back here. What are you doing? And so he jumped behind a slash pile they had made a few weeks before when they had cleared that area. They were kind of moving their way down the valley, right? Yeah. So about three weeks before they'd been working there. So he, he was kind of, he jumped closer to the ship and kind of was almost under, directly under it at this point, trying to hide behind some logs and just look at it. And then he finally got the idea that, well, maybe this wasn't the brightest thing to do. So he stood up quickly to run back to the truck. And at that instant, it was like, boom, he was hit by this beam that came out of the craft and it hit him kind of right in the chest. It, it threw him back like he'd been hit with a grenade. One, a couple of the guys had been in the military. One of them had spent time actually, I think in Vietnam, he said, and he, he saw grenades go off. He saw people get hit. You know, he said it was like an explosion had hit him and threw him backwards about fifth, a good 15 feet. And when Travis landed, he didn't make any attempt to break his fall. He just kind of landed and slumped, you know, and the other guys in the truck assumed he was dead. Yeah. The force that hit him, I mean, it lit the whole forest up like daylight and they could feel it in the truck. They could feel it in their bodies. You know, they could feel it at the, Mike Rogers said he could feel it in the steering wheel. So they right. slammed the door and started screaming at Mike Rogers to, get the, yeah, get the heck out of there. Right. right. So he, they did. I mean, Mike had the responsibility for protecting the rest of the guys and the crew. And he, he drove further up this, this kind of valley that they'd been working in called Turkey Springs. And when they got up to the dirt road, which is referred to as the rim road, it's also called route 360. He decided that he had to go back and get Travis because he was the crew boss. I mean, they were all panicked and freaked out, right? Yeah. So he knew he had to go back and get Travis. So he told all the other guys, look, get out of the truck. I'm going to give you some gasoline, you know, throw, put it, move a slash pile into the middle of the road here, burn it, you know, stay warm. And I'm going to, I'm going to go back and get, get Travis. But here, take some gas cans, blow the fire. So th this is one of those things that I've been trying to wrap my mind around and I wonder what you think about this and hopefully we can ask Travis Travis we're speaking to Jennifer Stein director of the Travis Walton documentary and Travis is having some technical difficulties and hopefully he'll be able to rejoin us and 
Jennifer, if you get a chance to message him or something, uh, you might let him know we're still here. But one thing I've tried to wrap my mind around, I've talked to other people about this. I've spoke to Smitty about it and CJ and our military consultant and different people, you know. The point where Mike Rogers and the rest of the crew decided we're going to leave, we're going to leave Travis behind. What do you make of the psychology behind that? Well, they they were they were shocked by what had happened. And they didn't know if this craft wasn't going to hit them with a beam as well. And Mike had the responsibility for the lives of all these young men. And Travis never second guessed him, even when Travis came back. Travis has commended Mike for taking off and protecting those boys as best he could. Um, they were just totally freaked out. I can't imagine what I would have done in that situation. Um, of course, Travis did the stupid thing, getting out of this truck and running under it, you know, or running right under the craft. But a few weeks before, he'd gotten out of the truck and went, wah, 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 in front of a bear that was in the middle of the road <laughs> to scare the bear out of the way so they could get around it. So Travis was known for like maybe being a little wild at times you know well he's also yeah 21 and he's full of piss and vinegar or gutsy yeah he rode a motorcycle and he wasn't married he didn't have a family and he you know he uh i i think actually mike did the right thing but i'll tell you what what transpired after they got to the top of this valley because i think this is important for people to understand Mike and Travis were very good friends. They'd been working together a couple of years already. I think since Travis had been about, you know, 17 or 18, he'd been work logging. Um, in fact, Travis went to school with Mike's younger brother and Travis was dating Mike's younger sister and eventually married Mike's what? younger sister. And many people don't know what? that Dana... Travis's wife. He, Travis is still <laughs> married, although they're, they don't live together right now, but they're still married. And they have been for, I don't know, 45 years, something like that. And uh, Dana is Mike Rogers' younger sister. So, you know, it's kind of all in the family up there. And they're all Mormons. This is a Mormon community. These are, these are Mormon men, you know, from your, they were young Mormon boys from a young Mormon community at that point. Yeah. Long story short, they're at the top of the hill. They can look down the hill and they can see the craft now because they're above it, right? They're up by the rim road. This craft is maybe, oh. you know, 100 feet below them down the hill. And Mike says to all the guys in the crew, get out, wait here. I'm taking the truck back. I'm going to go get Travis. None of the boys wanted to wait in the forest by themselves. None of them wanted to be away from each other. They all wanted to be together. And as soon as they got right. the truck turned around, they were all piling back into the truck. And what happened is, they saw the craft take off. It just, they saw it raise up and boom, it was gone. So they knew the craft wasn't there anymore. So they hightailed it back down to where they knew Travis was to pick him up because they knew they had to get him to a hospital or something. And then all the thoughts racing through their minds, like, oh my gosh, nobody's going to believe us. How are we going to explain this? What if he's dead? What are we going to do? You know, some of them were crying. Mm -hmm. Then they got there. They knew where they had stopped the truck because they knew this area. They'd been logging it for months now. They had a like an eight-month contract in this valley. And they could see where the tires had spun out on the truck when they took off. And there was no Travis. They knew exactly where he landed. Mm -hmm. By this time, the forest is dark. They turned the truck around, parked the headlights up there. They had one flashlight in the headlights of the truck. They're screaming for him. They're looking for him. They're looking for footprints, and they can't find him. And then the reality sinks in that they've got to go ask for help. They have to go call the police. And it's 45 minutes down a switchback road to the closest telephone. Right. This is out in the middle of nowhere. There's no electric up there in this forest. Right. And we're talking about the 70s, of course. So yeah, there's, there's a few cabins. There's a few fire towers for the, you know, National Forestry Service. But that's about it. And those are far and few between. And they're not manned usually by November. So the for you know, the Forest Service is usually only manning and looking for fires in like May, June, July, and August. You know, that that's about it. 
So, um, and it's starting to get cold. It's November. So at this elevation, it could easily go down to 30, 32 degrees at night. No problem. What was the, it was high, right? What was the elevation where they were? About 7,000 feet. 7,000 feet. That's, that is high elevation. Yeah. 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 So they did the right thing. They went down to the local closest phone booth and they called the closest sheriff's office. You know, they dialed over the operator and has to be connected to the police. And then a deputy came out, told them they all had to wait there at a gas station at a phone booth. And then a, a sheriff came out, a deputy sheriff named uh, Deputy Ellison, Chuck Ellison. And, um, you know, the drama begins. Yes, it sure <laughs> it's does. a long, dramatic story. It's still going on. And really, it ruined most of these boys' lives. I know. And yeah. most people don't really understand that. What exactly got you into of studying about supernatural phenomenon, UFOs, and those types of things? Well, most of us don't step into this field until we have an experience. And I did myself when I was 19. I had an encounter at about 5.30 in the morning outside my bedroom window, but it was a very bizarre encounter because it was a rectangle of white light that was about 90 feet long and about six feet high that hovered above a big tree in a meadow that was right outside my bedroom window. I had a modern house that my dad built that was set in the side of a hill. So this thing was less than 500 feet from me. And it didn't make any sense. It wasn't light when I woke up and saw this. Um, I was startled in a dream. And when I woke up, this thing was basically not quite sitting outside my window. It was about a mile and a half away, about 45 degrees on the horizon. But it was a rectangle of white light, and I saw it. And I was trying to journal in a journal and write down my dreams. So I was trying to write down the dream I had that startled me awake. And as I did that, I look out, and I realize it's not light. But it's not completely dark either. It's like black and white. And there's this rectangle of light you know, sitting there, not moving, just sitting there, mile and a half away, 45 degrees on the horizon. And I think, well, that's weird. What's that? You know, and then it doesn't move and it doesn't move and it doesn't move. And then I say it again, like, what the that? Yeah. <laughs> and whoa, at that moment, it moves, it jumps in and out of reality. In three seconds, it's right outside my bedroom window, but it's not lighting anything up but it's the most brilliant white light that can be, but it's not lighting up my bedroom where I have floor to ceiling windows. And I realize something is going on. And then I realize I can't move and I start to cry because I don't have my faculties. Oh, man. And then a few seconds later, what I perceive is less than a minute. I know that it's leaving. I suddenly can move. It takes off very quickly in the opposite direction to about a mile and a half away, about 45 degrees on the horizon in an opposite direction. And I jump up and say, wait a minute, what just happened? Who are you? What are you? Where are you from? What just, you know, and then it just took off. Mm. So I wrote it all down in my journal. I woke my mother up in the next bedroom and, and said, did you see this? Did you see this? And she remembers that quite well. I journaled it all. But I never knew what it was until about 25 years after the event. And someone else who was staying in my house in another floor of the house saw the same thing. Wow. And they asked me about it. And that's uh, so it, this happened when I was 19, just turning 20. And then when I was 45, uh, this friend came to me and said, you know, you, we have to discuss this. But it, it's just astonishing to me that we never discussed it at the time. Right. So that is what really affected me. This event stayed in my gray box for a long time. And when I finally realized it was real, I kind of had to take a couple steps back in my life. Right. Um, I lived in a very conservative community. I had a very, you know, traditional marriage and children. And I was part of nonprofits and sat on boards and did lots of good community things but to step into the ufo field was a little woo woo for <laughs> but i kind of i kind of felt like i had the responsibility to do that because either i was going to know that this was real 
and that there was the next, this was the next big frontier to unravel and understand. Like consciousness, um, like knowing yourself, like being able to go within, like life after death experiences, like understanding synchronicity. All these things had been happening in my life and it was time I began to digest them. So this wasn't that big of a step for me, although it appeared to be for many people around me. Yeah. I think that uh, what you said, the veil of secrecy of anyone that has experienced something is pretty common, oh, especially yeah. during that period of time. Oh, sure. And that's what's kind of phenomenal about Travis's uh, experience, that it was automatically documented with the police yes. authorities yes. As, as it was almost happening. I mean, moments after it happened. That and, is right. And, Smitty, the other thing I will say is that this is why I have so much respect for Travis Walton. Yes. Because I had a choice in deciding how I wanted to be involved in this field, you know, and I didn't come out and tell people my story for years. I just started hosting speakers and joined the Mutual UFO Network and became a field investigator. And, you know, I did logical, small, safe steps. Travis was gone for five days. He was missing. There was over 500 people looking for him on horseback with helicopters, police, you know, Navajo search and rescue dogs, you know, from the, from the local, you know, police station uh, were out hunting for him. So when he came back, he was being hounded. Like, mm-hmm. where were you? What did you do? And everyone suspected it of him making this up or hiding out in the forest. Even today, people accuse him of hoaxing this event. And God knows it was so complex. I don't know how he could have ever hoaxed it. In fact, I wouldn't have made the documentary if I had any doubt. Right. And and then on top of that, Paramount Pictures decided to come in and make a fictional movie about it. Although they tried to kind of follow the general story, but some facts were changed. And certainly what happened on board the craft, what, what he remembers of that, which is quite an amazing story. Yes. It's it's really a very powerful story, and it's undeniable because there were way too many people involved, right? Right, who saw it. That's what makes it so incredible. Yeah, I mean, all the loggers and the fact that the police suspected them of murdering Travis because right. he was missing for five days, so they all underwent polygraph tests. That never happens in a UFO case. <laughs> right. Those are expensive. You know, yeah. who's going to go take a polygraph? When some when you see a UFO, you know who's going to pay for that? It's like several hundred dollars a piece. But right. the Arizona, you know, police department demanded that these these kids take it because they were afraid they were lying, and they all passed. So my documentary, I I interview the police, I interview Chuck Ellison and uh, Deputy uh, Gillespie as well, and I also interview Cy Gilson who was the Arizona state polygraph uh, expert at the time who did the polygraph uh, test. And, and now um, I know Cy Gilson and um, Marlon Gillespie have passed on. I, I think Chuck Ellison is still with us, but honestly, I am not sure. Mm. It's, it's an incredible story and good for you for doing this documentary and allowing Travis to tell the truth, because it seems yeah. like even with this fire in the sky movie that came out, you know, it was not portrayed exactly as it happened. And then people do start questioning and Travis knows what happened. Mike knows what he saw. You know, they have two sides of that story and you got to piece it all together, which is wonderful. And I do believe we have a clip from, from the documentary. This is courtesy of Jennifer Stein. Folks, I actually had a listener text me a possible explanation behind Travis's technical difficulties. Apparently, Mercury is in retrograde until May 14th, and that always affects technology. And that's what I was texted. Here is a clip of Travis's experience on board the ship, not as we saw on Fire in the Sky, but as according to Travis Walton himself. When I regained consciousness, I was in such pain that it would actually sort of knock me back out again, the pain. 
I knew something was terribly wrong with my body. I couldn't move, but it was so difficult. But I felt I was probably safe in a hospital that they, I was being taken care of. There was some sort of device across my chest. I had a lot of pain in my chest. I could hear the sounds of movement around me, and I just took this to be doctors. Then when I looked in the direction of the movement sounds, I could see blurry forms that I thought were doctors wearing surgical caps and, and masks. So when I sharpened the focus in my eyes, I could see that was not the case. I was looking into the face of this creature. Then I knew I was in very great danger. And here this face was so close to me, another right behind him. The fear gave me the strength to raise my arm. It pushed the, the one that was standing close to me back, and he fell into the other one. And I was rolling away from him, and this object across my chest fell off. I got on my feet and staggered back, and I bumped up against a shelf, and there was an array of instruments laying out there. I just glanced, grabbed the biggest thing I could find, and started flailing in their direction to keep them from coming any closer. That moment was the focus of my nightmares for months afterward. They stopped with their hands extended towards me and staring in a way that felt invasive and intrusive, like they were looking inside of me. It was horrible. I came to realize that it had to do with the stare, and the stare was them trying to reassert control, I think. Once it was apparent they weren't going to physically or even telepathically control me, they turned and left the room and uh, went to the right. And so I went in the opposite direction that they had gone. Were they behind me? Were they pursuing me? Or was around this tight curve that I couldn't see more than a few feet ahead, uh, was I going to run into something worse? Adding to the panic was this feeling of suffocation. This feeling was about to pass out from lack of air. I came to a doorway and looked in. I was fearful of the chair in the middle. It was a high back chair, and I was afraid there could be someone sitting in it. So when I moved to the side and could see that there was no one in it, then I moved towards the chair. And it was then that I realized that the closer I came to the center of the room, the walls, the floor, the ceiling were darkened except for points of light. It was a planetarium kind of a projection. My main concern was open these doors. I assumed that perhaps the, the buttons that were on the arm of this chair might open the door. That moved the star pattern. I was already unsteady on my feet. I turned and there was a, a man in the door. He had this glass helmet over his head. I started towards him, babbling questions and trying to tell him about these creatures that were in there. He took me by the arm and was leading me out. We went through what I think was a, an airlock. You know, this door closed and that door opened and we went out. At this point, the craft we came out of was parked inside of this big hangar-like building or it might have been part of a larger craft. He led me towards the vertical wall opposite this, through some doors, down a hallway, into a room where there were some other people. They were very similar to him. A similar dress, similar coloring, light-colored hair, light-colored eyes. They're leading me, taking me by the arm and putting me over towards this table. Uh, I was in a weakened condition, but I felt their strength. But still, the panic I had at being restrained like that, I was able to jerk one hand free. And they put this mask over my face, and I got my finger under the edge of that, trying to pull it away. But before I could pull it away, boom, I was out. Ooh, Intense. Pretty amazing. So intense. So we, we're hopeful that Travis Walton is going to be able to jump back in here. He's having some technical difficulties. But in the meantime, we have the absolute best person to convey this story. We've got Jennifer Stein, who directed this documentary, produced this documentary that you just saw, which is called Travis, the true story of Travis Walton. So she has every insight that there is to exactly what happened. And it was her goal to tell the story in the most truthful way possible. So Jennifer, again, we thank you for joining us and for sharing that clip. Um, one thing I wanted to go back to was how big did they say the craft, the craft looked? About 20 feet. About 20 feet. 
about 20 feet across. 15 to 20 feet is the guesstimate. So he assumes when he wakes up on this craft that it is different, correct? Well, it certainly had to be larger than 20 feet because probably the room he was in was at least six or seven feet when he woke up because he himself is about almost six feet tall. If you've ever met Travis, you you know that. But um, yes, many people who have had onboard UFO experiences say the perspective of inside and outside the craft are very different. But what's interesting is he woke up right on board a disc. So maybe it was more like 35 or 40 feet, actually, maybe. Because when he walks off it, he can look at it. And it's like gunship metal. It's not lit up. It's not bright like it was in the forest. It was Mm. kind of off or parked. And it was parked in what appeared to be some kind of a hangar, what we might think of as an airplane hangar, except the ceiling was kind of lit with panels. Some were light and some were dark. So we tried to, to graphically represent that in this little film clip. And I don't know if you caught it or not, but when he walked mm-hmm. off this, this ship and down this ramp, they walked by. Four, he, Travis yes. says he thinks it was about five other craft that were sitting behind them. And they look like mm. shiny eggs, he described them. Right. To me, that sounds like yeah. a tic-tac. Yeah. Possibly. We don't know. But this was 1977, decades before mm-hmm. we heard about the Nimitz or the Roosevelt or the Tic Tacs being followed by F-16s. But he walked off of the ship on ground around UFO. Well, he walked off of the round UFO disc. It was parked in a hangar. So we don't know where that hangar was. We don't know if that was. Are we assuming it's on Earth, though? I mean, with gravity and he's able to breathe and... He was able to breathe. He was able to walk. There appeared to be gravity. Absolutely. So was it an underground base on the earth? Was it in a mothership that has those things provided? He also said that while he was on the round UFO disc, it was very hard to breathe and it was very musty and Mm. it was moist and it was like he was struggling for his breath and he was in a lot of pain in his chest. As soon as the door lock opened, this guy took his hand and walked him towards, you know, a door and double doors opened and then they were in an airlock. A door closed behind him and another door opened in front of him. And when they were in the airlock, sort of between the hangar and the inside of this little disc, he could suddenly breathe better. And then when the doors opened, he could breathe even better in the large hangar. And then he walked down a ramp across like a tarmac of some sort. He's described it as me some to me sometimes as like, you know, it it was kind of a squishy floor, like you might yeah. find in a gym where there's weights. Or sometimes now you mm-hmm. go to specialized like exercise playgrounds that are built by community yeah. centers and they have soft landing sites for the kids that fall off the swing and the the monkey bars, you know, I imagine it was kind of like that. It was a bit of a soft, squishy floor that they walked across. And one side of this hangar was had a flat, straight wall with some doors and windows in it. And they walked through doors that opened down a hallway. And he, he got the impression he was in a medical facility of some sort, like a hospital, because he knew he was in pain. And you know, and even when he woke up, he thought he was being cared for in a hospital. But I imagine when he woke up, that wasn't a quick process. He explained that he couldn't see. He couldn't focus. All he could see was a light above him. And in fact, he thought he saw doctors around him because he saw what looked like what he thought was medical, you know, headpieces and masks. But when he could finally focus his eyes, he realized there was almost nothing to the lower part of the face. And these were big heads and big black eyes. These were grays. Once he finally, once he started to wake up, they came close and looked at him, right? And that's when he went, oh my God. And he hit one. And he said when he hit it, it was kind of like a 
a frail 90 year old woman, you know, somebody who had very mm. thin bones and was very lightweight and very fragile. And he fell back, right? And he fell back on the one behind him. Yeah. And then the two of them were like stumbling. I think that's fascinating, you know? And then, you know, he, he realized that they weren't human and they were kind of scary to him and kind of ugly. And he jumped up, but this device was lying across his chest, which fell off. I mean, it's all very interesting stuff. The, the other thing that's fascinating is that the room he walks into, right? He's trying to find his way out of this craft. He doesn't know how to get out of it. He doesn't want to run into these aliens. So he goes the opposite way they go. When they, they leave the room, he goes out the same door and goes the opposite way. And he finds a room with this big chair in it. We used an egg chair with a pedestal base because that's what Travis described it looking like. So he walked in the room first, seeing the back of the chair. He was afraid one of these beings was in the chair. So he wanted <laughs> to kind of like get around the side and like, you know, peer in. And right. Who's there? Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, if there's somebody in there, I'm going to run out of here. But there was nobody in the chair. So as he started to walk towards the chair, the whole room became a planetarium. The floor, the ceiling, the chair, every surface disappeared and became a surround planetarium. So there is Mm -hmm. technology even in that description that we don't completely have, right? We can go to a planetarium and see a show and it can be controlled by the, the you know, astronomer who's giving you the presentation in the, in the sky. And of course we can move the sky and give you appearances of certain things. But this, this was right. all by motion sensor. So as he walked close to that chair, that be, he thinks it was like a navigation room of some sort. And again, we're talking back in the 70s. Yes. No, I'm sorry. 1975. Yeah, that's right. So a couple of times, and I've now listened to his story in several different locations, he kept saying he saw these humans, right? These human beings or what he believed to be human beings. He thought they were human. The second species he saw. Yeah. Fast forward now, and he's had all this time to think about it. And not that that necessarily changes the reality of, of what actually happened, but does he still think that they were human? Well, he describes him as being bigger than he was, more muscular, blue eyes, almost golden blue eyes, the way many of the Greek Mm. gods are shown to have like golden and bright blue eyes, platinum blonde hair, kind of all looking somewhat similar, like they're all cousins or nephews or nieces of one another or something. That's interesting. Also, it sounds very angelic. Yes, also very angelic. Yes. You know, angels, when it boils down to it, are literally extraterrestrial beings. They are beings from beyond this realm. Many people have come to that conclusion. Yes. Yes. So, Jennifer, another thing I thought was really fascinating is that, and by the way, to prepare for this show, we all listened to Travis and Mike Rogers' interview with Art Bell in, I believe it was 1999 or 96, on Coast to Coast AM. A classic interview. It's amazing. I believe they were both on phone, telephone with him. So very old school kind of vibes going on. During that interview, Travis and Mike, well, Travis especially speculated, well, when they stepped off the ship, perhaps, and you alluded to this also, perhaps, it was on a mothership. And, you know, I think that in the 70s, that was a big pill for people to swallow to consider that they could, that he could have been stepping out onto a mothership. But you know what? Fast forward now to 2023. And a frequent guest of this show, Harvard astrophysicist Avi Loeb, Avi Loeb. just co-authored a paper with the Pentagon's the Arrows director, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, who just recently testified before the Senate at a UFO hearing, and a major part of their pa- paper said that the Earth, you know, they could be being seeded by probes from an extraterrestrial mothership. Now, this is coming directly from the Pentagon, 
and the Harvard astrophysicist. This has as much powerful backing from the folks in charge of chasing UFOs in 2023 as you can possibly get. So I just thought that was fascinating. I wonder what what is your your take on that? How how times have changed, but it stay, has stayed so relevant. It is hugely important, Tim, and thank you for bringing that up. In 2017, I think, or 20, I don't remember exactly when Amuamua showed up, but I think Mm -hmm. it was 2017, October of 2017. Avi Loeb actually made major headlines around the world because he actually stated that he believed there was a very strong possibility that this craft, Amuamua, as they called it, because it was seen by the Pan-Spares or Pan-Spears, Pan-Stars, that's it, Pan-Stars, planetarium, not planetarium, observatory in Hawaii, uh, had the best view of it. And from the pictures they took of it and the way they tracked it, it did not act like an asteroid because it came in at a fast trajectory, I don't know, 90,000 miles an hour, slowed down, almost came to a stop, then rotated and took off mm-hmm. in another direction. And it didn't have an outgassing tail like typical comets or asteroids do. So we knew it wasn't an asteroid. And by looking at it, we could tell that it could have very well been, I don't know if you followed this too, they, they, they did depictions of it where they thought maybe it's a long cylinder, but it could have very well been just the way we saw it looked like a long cylinder, but it could have literally been a mm-hmm. large disc as well. But just by the way we saw it, vas- you know, vacillating, we may have just thought it was a cylinder because all we did is pick up reflections of it and then kind of tried to d- create or recreate a drawing of it because it was so far away, you know, from what we could see, but very, very fascinating. I'll point out to the listeners who may be younger than, than some of us in 1975, the head of astronomy at Harvard was Donald Menzel, who was a huge debunker of the UFO subject, had written his own books debunking the subject and most likely Uh, It's pretty clear now, uh, after his death, we know that he was one of the founding members of the NSA, the National Security Agency. And this was top secret. Even his wife didn't know he was part of the NSA. Some of that, I think, sir, will say for close assessment. (laughs) Yes, they sure have changed. Yeah, Things have changed. And then I often like to invite people to consider why. What's going on that's different? And I believe that Avi Loeb did talk about how his predecessor at Harvard was part of the reason he was kind of skeptical for going on there. Certainly, he's talked about how so many people in that field, in his profession, are very hesitant to even speak about UFOs for fear that they will have backlash or that they won't be taken seriously. And he has been very open about I've got tenure. I've got nothing to lose. I think this is what's happening and I'm going to pursue it. And and we're so grateful that he is. That's right. People have to wait till they have tenure. And even then they risk losing it. Just like John Mack at Harvard. He, he had tenure by 10 years and wrote a book on regressions that he was doing with people and he almost lost. And, and he was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer and wow. a revered professor. And he almost lost his tenure. In fact, they tried to boot him and he had to hire legal representation, which he did. Um, Good friend of mine represented him and uh, he was able to save his position at Harvard. But it's very tricky, even today. Yeah, even today. So sticking with the Avi Loeb theme, while we wait to see if Travis can call in, one thing that he also hypothesized is that these craft are using water or could potentially use water as fuel. And we're seeing so many now over water, right? And one thing that you mentioned Travis said was that the original craft he was in was very moist and musty and it felt like there was you know water you know in the air is that something he's considered you've considered that, that they're possibly using water as fuel to you know it's it's a really good question who knows right. um 
I have I have heard stories. A friend of mine named Carl Feint wrote a book called uh, USOs about UFOs under the water and mm-hmm. above the water, and he actually describes toroidal tunnels funnels of water being sucked up into craft you know maybe these little sport craft are just picking water up to take it to the mothership (laughs) to restore you know fresh water if there's a mothership at you know i don't know eighty thousand or feet or you know 10 miles out or something like that it's it's a speculation you know i i don't have certainly a physics background to know why or how they could be using water but we also know that if they're using nuclear some form of nuclear power or, or mercury or anti-gravity it might need to be cooled and we certainly use water for cooling mm-hmm. right in our nuclear power plants so maybe uh that's that's a, a something to be considered but you know who the heck knows it's just speculation how did you get with travis good question well um, basically, it was a bottle of wine and dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get me convinced. <laughs> right. The way most things happen in the world. I was asked by a mutual dear friend of of our of ours, both um, named Peter Robbins, whom I had. Who he lived in New York. I lived in Philadelphia. Peter came to Philadelphia many times to speak, and um, Peter. He asked me if I would help him run one of the Roswell UFO conferences because I've been a former event coordinator and, you know, I used to do weddings and bar mitzvahs. So (laughs) running a UFO conference is kind of second nature to me. And I have good people skills and he was running a major conference for the mayors. So in Roswell, there are mutual conferences that go on simultaneously around the 4th of July weekend commemorating the very famous Roswell's crash of 1947. So I was there helping him run this event. Travis was one of our speakers. And afterwards, all the speakers went out for dinner. And we were sitting there speaking with Travis saying, you know, you really should run a conference in Snowflake. It's um, an area that could use the economic influx because the Roswell UFO conference changed the nature of the town Mm. of Roswell. I mean, major hotel chains came in there. They got upwards of 10,000 people every summer for a week or two that showed up at these conferences. So we said to Travis, you know, your event is 20 years younger or more than, you know, 1947 to 1977, you know, practically 30 years. And you should consider running a conference, you know, because we told him your 40th anniversary of your event is coming up at that point. And we said, why don't you start thinking about planning a conference? And he said, oh, you know, I can't do that. And we said, well, look, Peter and I have experience. We'll lend a hand. And then in the planning of that, that's kind of what led to the documentary because it was going to be in November on the weekend of the anniversary. And he wanted to take everybody up into the forest. And I said, Travis, I wouldn't take 150 people into the forest at night in the dark. Let's just film the whole thing and show it to them in a, on a movie screen, you know, in the comfort of a conference. I mean, you're going to need major insurance to take people into the forest. Right. The liability. (laughs) What if somebody goes off to, pee and they get lost, you know, and then before you know it, they get bit by a rattlesnake or they get, uh, you know, um, I don't know, abducted by a UFO, abducted by a UFO or attacked <laughs> by a group of hyenas or, you know, a bear comes after them or something. Right. You know? It's getting your money's worth. It's just too risky. It, it, there's too much to step over there. And too many people, older people couldn't manage that hike. I mean, it's a 45 minute hike from the nearest road. There's no bathroom. So it was like an insurance and a, a, you know, a conference nightmare for me. Logistical nightmare. And I said, let's just film all the guys in the forest. So that's what I started to do in preparation for the 40th anniversary. And Mm. then I went, you know what? I've got a documentary here. (laughs) I had interviewed the guys and then I went, you know, Deputy Ellison's still alive. So is, you know, Marlon Gillespie. I made it. I am. So I'm going to book a trip, fly back out there and start to interview these guys. And that's what I did. So 2013, 2014 and 2015, 
I interviewed everybody I could, including some other UFO experts like Lee Spiegel and Peter Robbins and Kathleen Martin and Stanton Friedman, who's no longer with us. Mm. And Stanton had been one of the people who had actually shown up and investigated the site, along with Lee Spiegel. I mean, not, not Lee, uh, Leo Sprinkle. So I interviewed all these people and then started to put the documentary together uh, to be screened at a conference at the 40th anniversary. So that's kind of how it all came about. I, I kind of got into this like half-assed backwards, <laughs> but I'm really glad I it did. It all worked out. Yeah, it's very yeah. good. Um, yes. You know, at one time, Travis had said, and this was on the Art Bell show again, and they were half promoting the movie at the time, but also kind of half saying, you know, that's not totally how it went and retelling their story. And, and Travis said, you know, after this movie, I'm done. I'm really done talking about this event. I'm done. It's taken over my life. I'm tired. I'm done. Was he ever done? Did he ever get a moment of not the Travis Walton abducted by aliens and could just live his life? Or has this sort of haunted him since 1975? Well, I think I think he's gotten to that hurdle several times, Chris, and I think he would like, you know, p- part of him has moved on beyond it. I mean, part of him has a normal life. He has 14 grandchildren. He has four fabulous children that all live near him. Uh, he gets together with friends and plays his guitar, you know, um, But another part of him realizes that he has an opportunity and sort of a responsibility. If he can make something good come from this, he he ought to, because certainly a lot of bad has come from it in Mm -hmm. Travis's life. He will openly be the first to admit that many doors were closed to him. And if he could go back and do it over, he would never get out of that truck. And he's had to bear the brunt of huge amounts of, of ridicule and, you know, rejection and judgment that the normal person in their normal walks of life probably would not have to undergo. And for many years, a good 30, there was a focused debunker on this case doing everything he could to unravel that. And that was Philip Class. Um, and there's evidence uh, that I have found uh, that he most likely was on the payroll of some type of organization that was attempting to uh, undermine any mm-hmm. type of uh, truth and create suspicion. A debunker doesn't have to prove anything wrong. His mission is only to create doubt. And if he sounds scientific enough and if he acts and has degrees and associations with organizations that sound sophisticated enough and he can create doubt, then he's done his job. And that's exactly what Philip Class did. Mm. That was very sad. He actually offered a bribe to one of the the crew members, the youngest. Really? Yeah. He offered him $10,000 to say that this was. Oh, and in your 20s, that's a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1970. Yeah. yeah, In 1970, he considered it. And, uh, of course, the other boys got wind of it, and so did uh, his wife. And his his wife talked him out of it. This was, um, uh, yeah, maybe I better not mention his name. I don't want him to. I mean, it's it's in the film, but, you know, people can can watch the film and, and find out. Yes, and they should. Absolutely. You know, we're certainly glad that Travis is still around talking about this. And I was telling CJ and Smitty, I think that, Jennifer, what has happened is is this, is that Fire in the Sky, whilst a departure from actual events, came out in 1993. Now, Smitty and I were seniors in high school. Okay. And so I think that now you've got this entire generation of people Um who are kind of in the prime of our lives. You know, you've got Joe Rogan, who who's in the same category there. And all kind, there's an entire generation of us who this movie left an indelible impression on. And I was hoping to pass this along to Travis myself, and hopefully it can work out for another time if it doesn't work out tonight. But he is on, you know, 
this generation's Mount Rushmore of historic figures in ufology. And there's just no other way around it. And we're fascinated by his story. And we love to, to hear more about it. And we love to hear from the man himself. And so we're thankful and grateful that he's still out there telling the world about it. And he is. In fact, we're both going to be at the McMinnville uh, UFO Conference. I think they call it the McManimus UFO Conference in Oregon uh, in the middle of May. I think that's May 19th and 20th. We're also going to be in Sierra Vista at a UFO conference down there called in that's near Tucson, the Sierra Vista UFO Conference, the very first weekend in May. So it's literally next weekend. Yes. Uh, Travis is actually coming to my house here in Anthem, and then we'll drive together uh, down to that UFO conference. So uh, I have a lot of respect for him that he just continues to go out and do this. And yeah. often, you know, he doesn't get paid a lot to go to these conferences. Maybe he gets $100. Maybe he sells $100 worth of books and talks to people. But, you know, it, it often barely covers his gas to get there <laughs> these days, right? You also have contact in the desert coming up in June, don't you? Yes, I will be there. I, I don't know if Travis is presenting or not, if he's speaking I didn't or not. see him on that one. There, But man, there's a list of presenters. Whew. Yes, I was very honored to be asked to present there. Um, I'll, I think I'll be speaking on Gobekli Tepe, which is an ancient site in Turkey where I've been. I have a great interest in uh, ancient archaeology, uh, having yes, a father yes. who was an architect. Um, you know, I, I have some sophistication about... <laughs> about building and uh certainly these sites uh you know are amazing and i believe contact in the desert is june 2nd through 4th and i'm pretty sure that's in indian wells california a town cj may know fairly well mm-hmm. yeah i've been there it's nice it's a definitely a good place to go have a conference oh yeah and contact in the desert has a gigantic guest a list, huge list of presenters including george nori i noticed Avi Loeb, yes, I'm pretty sure is going to be there. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you real quickly, you know, a theory that has come about is this idea that there was sort of an ancient civilization that was far more advanced than ourselves that possibly created craft and left the earth, you know, pre-dinosaurs, what have you. You know, what you're describing for the humans that we'll call them that Travis saw, you know, they sound... Is there any connection there? Is this a theory that you have considered or talked to anybody about? Well, there are many people who have actually created what they call a taconomy of or trachonomy of various different types of species. Uh, the the ebons are one of them. Um, the greys are one of them. And the Nordics are, are these technical terms or these typical terms you hear of UFO contactees. So there are probably many species of life that have similar characteristics to you and I, meaning that when you look in the ocean and you see fish, there are many different types of fish and they all have developed the ability to survive in the water with fins and the ability to suck oxygen through the water. And, uh, you know, a large tail and some can camouflage themselves, but they all basically have similar skin, eyes in similar places, right? Similar types of gills and things like that. So most likely there are various forms of species that have a head and two arms and two legs and some internal organs. And depending on their environment of their planet or where they've had to live, um, their environment creates particular types of physical characteristics. Oh, absolutely. And Travis actually answers this question very well himself too, about various species developing over millennium with similar characteristics. And it's, uh, it's likely there are many species out there. We may have Travis online with us. We have Travis Walton joining us via phone now, and suddenly I feel a lot like Art Bell. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, 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 it's just my own thinking, but, you know, I had a theory that, uh, you know, they, they refer to the aliens as humanoid, and a lot of people think, oh, that means resembling humans. No. To be continued. You've been listening to All Things Unexplained.
If you liked this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating and leave us a review. If you would like to hear more All Things Unexplained, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our show depends on the support of listeners like you. Find us on Venmo under the business accounts at Bigfoot UFO. If you can't get enough of us, please check us out at allthings-unexplained.com. A special thanks to our producer, director, sound mixer, editor, and the man who wears far too many hats. No, seriously, he wears a lot of hats. Dr. Tim Mounts. Without you, we couldn't keep the lights on. Thanks for listening to All Things Unexplained.